so I, it's kind of one of those things when when we get off to kind of a rough start like this, I kind of just assume that must mean it's going to turn out awesome because <laughs> it's all of my time in like ministry and leading retreats and things like that. That's always how it seemed to be. Is it's like you know what, the bigger a pain in the butt the week leading up to the retreat is. There's not like a one-to-one ratio on it, but it seems to be pretty consistent. Like if it's a really big pain, it's going to be a really good retreat. Yeah, I hear you. But I feel like we should just like start the podcast right now because we've had so many technical difficulties. No, no, I hear you. Like the small talk thing, this is going to have to just sort of count. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Yeah. Uh, Now that we have all this fancy equipment, still having technical difficulties. um, But but... it's easier for us to find workarounds. Yes. And to get things set up, like we don't. This time we ran into problems, but we didn't have to just scrap it and have you go solo. Right. We were able to mess around with some stuff and start recording again. Uh, so we've had like 10, 15 minutes of banter beforehand. So we're all talked out. So you guys missed out on that. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to bed now. So see you guys later. <laughs> Deuces. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Well, what uh, what beverages did you have? Anything good over the weekend? Yeah, actually. So unfortunately, like I texted my buddy who knows about wine and could tell me what it was I was drinking and he never got back to me with it. So sadly, it's going to be a really lame kind of review, but it was actually a really good wine. So last night mm. after our family Easter lunch, basically, a couple hours later, I ended up over at a buddy's house for kind of a, a friend's Easter dinner. Um, me and my roommate, Jim, went over to have dinner with a couple of my teacher friends who are both from out of the state. So don't really have a Mm. ton of family around to do things with. Nice. Um, And so one of them, well, actually both of them are really good in the kitchen. And so they made this like fancy duck dinner and it was really delicious. But there was this great white wine pairing with it. Really? I'll, I'll try and figure out what it was. Like I'm still waiting on him to get back to me and maybe we can put it in like the show notes or in the description or something because it was it was a great pairing with the duck it was like a drier white wine mm-hmm. than most and it just went with the the sweetness of the duck really really well nice um, so yeah it was it was super tasty very refreshing and just went well with all of the things that i was eating for quite a few yeah duck duck can be pretty fatty so that dry aspect of the white wine can kind of balance that out cut through it kind of a thing yeah so we had two different types of wine there was the the white wine i was talking about and then there was a, a bordeaux that was not bad it was pretty good but it didn't go with the duck as well as right. the white did, which right. was kind of a shock to me normally normally i just kind of always assumed that red would work better but hey live and learn they kind of go with their colors i think it's like red with red and white with white so you know, I think duck is kind of a weird in-between kind of a meat. Yeah. But... Well, and it was really... The duck was really tasty, but it was also one of those things, oh, this is why people don't eat duck. There was, like, so little meat on it. Yeah. Like, it was really tasty, but it was way more work to try and get the same amount of meat. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Yeah, and they're not all genetically modified to be monsters. Right, exactly. You know, like nature doesn't create 30 pound turkeys. So whatever you're buying at Albertsons, <laughs> that's not from nature. Yeah, that, just so you know, that's a right freak at the gym. <laughs> that's what that is. So This turkey was jacked. <laughs> oh, I actually tried a, an interesting thing. I paired my beer this, this weekend. So 
Uh, we got home. So oh, okay. again, on Easter, after Easter dinner, I guess we eat <laughs> right around like two thirty, three o'clock, but we eat so much right. that we don't eat dinner that night. So it's, it counts for both. Came home, but after, you know, three or four hours, you need something a little snacky. So Kristen and I split a piece of cheesecake and then I had nice. a, the Deschutes Black Butte, Black Butte's Porter. Black Butte Porter. Yeah. Nice. So like the Porter with cheesecake was like coffee and dessert. It was really, really good together. Awesome. Like I, I patted myself on the back for that. I was like, this is going to be amazing. I know it's going to be because this is like a dark coffee, bitter, you know, not bitter, but you know, it has that dark yeah, roastiness yeah. to it. And then the creamy, sweet cheesecake. I was like, this is going to be perfect. And it was fantastic. Love it when the confidence pays off. I love it. Yeah, it was. As opposed to how my confidence normally goes. <laughs> exactly, right. Which is like me talking trash before some kind of a competition and then promptly getting my butt kicked. Oh, that's uh, that's why I stopped talking trash. Like I, I oh, learned yeah. it happened so many times. I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to quit talking trash. And then you know, <laughs> I have a firm philosophy of don't give crap, don't get crap. So I... Uh, I don't talk trash, and then hopefully I might win something every once in a while. There you go. It's a good, good thought. <laughs> oh, how was uh, how was the Easter celebrations for you? It was nice, man. So I went to the, the vigil at my uh, school parish because one of the teachers and one of my 7th grade students were both coming into the church. And so, you know, as the religion teacher who keeps telling them that the sacraments are a big deal, I figured... <laughs> That'll probably carry more weight if I, like, show up and support it. Right. And I was a little bit nervous just because it was a bilingual service, and Uh, those can get kind of unruly kind of quickly. Well, not even just the length, but it's also, I actually have an easier time focusing if it's a Spanish mass than I do if it's hopping back and forth between languages. That's fair. I started, I was pretty uh, apprehensive about how it was going to go, and it was long. It was a a full three-hour three to hour and 15 minute mass, something like that. Those are so hard. Yeah. But actually they did a really, really good job with it. And I was super impressed with our choir because they did a, uh, they did like the whole choir. Like they had the little kid choir. They had the youth choir, the adult choir. That's cool. Probably. There were probably some paid professionals slipped in as well. Oh, absolutely. So one of my students, I didn't know she was going to be, but she did the, uh, Psalm response between, so they did the full number of readings, so seven Old Testament readings, which means seven psalm responses as well. And one of the sixth grade girls did uh, an incredible job with what was definitely the most difficult musically of the psalm responses. And so they, they did. You could tell they had put a ton of time and effort into getting ready for it, and man, did it pay off. They That's were fantastic. Cool. That's cool. How about yours? It was... Uh... I had a couple of special moments pop up, actually. It was on... first one was on Good Friday. So my youngest, my uh, berserker, was her normal <laughs> self. And so Kristen was off wrangling her in the back of the church somewhere. But, you know, Good Friday is a very solemn service. And, right. you know, our church does this kind of thing. Instead of having the cross where everybody kind of goes up and, like, kisses the cross... Yeah. Ours, they have, they give you a piece of paper and you write, you know, things that you want to leave behind or whatever. And then they give you a hammer and nail and you go up there and you nail it to the cross. Okay. You know, it's dark and it's somber and they read the last seven, uh, seven words of Jesus, even though it's more than a word, but you know what I'm saying? Right. Brooklyn was sitting next to me and starts crying. And I was like, 
what is she crying for? But she it was actually just she was caught up in the moment and was so heartbroken that Jesus died and that he was good. Why would they kill him? You know, and I was just like, this is my gosh, this is really sinking in, man. Like this is this is what you want. She had and she has that spirit and that heart that just loves so much that. Yeah, it was just really, really this outpouring. I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. That's up. That's fantastic. And then yep. uh, putting this one in the memory bank oh, for the next time things are rough. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then on Easter we went to church uh, Saturday evening as well. And, okay. Uh, my parents, so like my parents, Kristen's parents, all met us there, and Dad actually went up and took communion. So that was that was new. He he's come to church multiple times with us, but he's never actually right. gone up to the communion table with everybody. And so nice. that felt good yeah it was it was you know he's kind of got that old cowboy faith where they believe but they don't talk about it yeah and so seeing him they believe but the fewer people who know exactly what they believe kind of the better yeah exactly <laughs> the they have their ways you know but it was right. really it was really cool to see him go up there I, I for me anyway so it was a couple of really cool moments this easter for us so but as much as we would love to continue talking about how fantastic Easter is and how it's a celebration of life over death, I think that, as you kind of wrote here in our outline, that would be disingenuous to just focus on that and skip over the whole Sri Lanka incident, huh? Yeah, no, I mean, and it's... There is a twisted brilliance to the irony and the timing of the the attacks in Sri Lanka in terms of bombing hotels and churches on the day when Christians celebrate again that idea of conquering death right um, you know that that ch- that common refrain of oh death where is your sting oh, no and oh hell where is your victory like those <clears throat> bringing the the darker realities of our life here on earth into contrast with that was really, um, really brutal. Yeah. Um, before we go too far on it though, like I do just want to make sure everyone understands like this is still a very fresh attack and there's all kinds of information that we don't have. Right. And every time we're talking about something like this, one of my big goals is I always try to make sure I will not have to come back and post an apology piece, you know, the, right. the taking back, Oh shoot. I jumped to conclusions on this. So like we're not experts on this by any stretch. There's all kinds of stuff that no one knows, and there's a lot of stuff that people know that we don't. Yep. What we're mostly going to be kind of talking about though is just sort of, you know, our reactions and reflections on it, on the violence in general, and that kind of stuff. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Kristen actually just like came in and was like, "Did you hear about this?" I was like, "I did not hear about that." So I didn't even uh, get a chance to dig into it until late sunday night and i read a little bit this morning so what do we know actually happened so sri lanka um for anyone who hasn't really paid attention or hasn't like followed up on their geography since like high school and stuff that was me yeah no 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 worries man like sri lanka is basically it's a small independent island nation off like the southern tip of india like most of the far east it has a fairly high population density for its size. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something like just under 22 million people living on the island, I believe. Holy cow. But the island is overwhelmingly Buddhist. 
uh, I was looking at some numbers today, kind of getting ready for this, and it was somewhere around like 70% of the population is Buddhist. There is a almost 10% Muslim population. There had been a civil war quite a while back, uh, and things had kind of calmed down, but the tensions had been on the rise recently. The uh, Some of the Muslims were smaller acts of terrorism, things like defaming, defacing Buddha statues and those kinds of things. And then on Easter Sunday, there were six confirmed suicide bombers and eight separate bombings that happened in three different cities, none of which I can remember the name of or was confident I could pronounce the name of them, even when I had them on paper in front of me. But all told, there were two hundred. There are, as of today, two hundred and ninety confirmed deaths from it, and twenty-four people arrested in relation to it. And to they, the attacks. They've kind of like nobody has claimed it, but the Muslim groups there are being kind of blamed for it right now, right? Or at least they're pointing yeah, there's, the so there's, pointing the finger at them right now. Well, so there's some multiple. There are multiple fingers being pointed. Okay. Some of the fingers are being pointed at the Sri Lankan government because apparently they had been given some intel. information from the United States and from India, both saying that they were their intelligence net, networks were picking up that things like this were coming, that something along this line was coming uh, a few days in advance, and there wasn't a whole lot done to act on that as far as anyone can see at this point again who knows what we're going to find out right and what the government can even say about what they were and weren't doing but some of the evidence that was being handed on to them suggested uh one particular local group that had been doing some of that stuff as being heavily involved um but the sri lankan government is basically saying that the scale and scope of the attacks is bigger than what their local groups uh, have shown a general capability of. And so they're convinced that it is part of an international coordination. What they mean by that, again, is unknown at this point, but that's kind of what they're talking about. There's a ton of the details that we don't really have, and that's about what I was able to to get where I felt confident Right. That saying it wasn't going to be something that I was going to have to come back later and be like, oh, well, so I missed this part. My bad. Yeah. And one of the things that really stuck out to me when she, when my wife told me about it was that Sri Lanka is so heavily Buddhist. And I was like, you don't, you don't hear Buddhist nations having acts of terrorism. And I was like, why would Buddhists act out against Christians? Because that doesn't make any sense to me. And then as you're saying, you know, looking at the numbers, Thank you for writing them down here with uh, only a 7.4% Christian. Like, what a small group. Like, are they that rowdy over there that they need to be targeted? Because, I mean, 7% doesn't, in a civil war, 7% doesn't, you know, change the tide. Well, and again, it's one of those things, too. I think what kind of struck me as odd is that most of the tension had been previously between the Muslims and the Buddhist majority. Uh, and so it it seems strange to me that suddenly on Easter it was directed towards the Christians. Like, I'm not sure. Right? It just seems kind of weird. There didn't seem to be a whole lot of buildup to it. Right. It just sort of seemed to be, which again, maybe that's part of why the Sri Lankan government is thinking that it's an international thing, is Mm. that locally there might not have been a ton of uh, animosity between Muslims and Christians. But if there's an outside influence there, they're going to target things. You've got the Muslim-Christian tension worldwide, then maybe that's part of what they're thinking. Right. 
Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, I'm interested to see too is what comes out of it is you know is religion and politics playing more of a role as in tandem where that line between religion and politics is blurring and so you know even though Buddhists don't traditionally have that kind of approach that I'm familiar with maybe there's Buddhist terrorism out there but I don't I don't know of it. Well, so I, I think the the idea of the blurred lines between kind of religion and politics is something that you can't overstate like that that's definitely part of it the idea of separation of church and state is not something that naturally takes hold in islam right in general right uh the islamic ideal is for it to be a state religion as well uh so there's definitely that part of it i feel like with buddhism and islam not necessarily there's a whole lot of uh history of tension but at the same time again looking at the political play out of it you know, there have been, so Hindu and Buddhism are definitely not the same, but they right. arise from similar cultures. And so when you look at like the, the Pakistani-Indian conflicts that have been going on since the time of British colonization there, it's easy to see where that religious difference between them ties so heavily into their idea of politics. And, right. You know, what should the government and what shouldn't the government be able to tell them? Right. And yeah, and just I guess I have kind of a concern of where the Buddhists will say, I'm Buddhist and I'm this party, you attack me, so then I got to attack you. And then we're going to start associating the religion with the political party with a religion that that is completely not known for anything like this. You know, I mean, I know that's kind of a slippery slope precedent that hasn't happened yet, but that's kind of my concern, right? Is that Buddhism is not as a pretty well accepted respected position you know like people don't look at buddhists and say oh you're a buddhist you're gonna blow my airplane up yeah because i can kind of go along with what you're saying in terms of that idea of militarization is normally something that happens in response right and so thank you for taking what i said and making it better no worries the, <laughs> the idea of like military hey man it's it's a team effort <laughs> Uh, but like the idea of Buddhism becoming militarized would be, I, I don't know how, like how steep that slope would have to be for it to be slippery enough. Okay. Just because, so when you look at one of the things that separates it is that, you know, in Judaism, Christianity, and definitely in Islam, there are lots of sacred sources you could look to and take out of context to justify right. militarization, you know? True, um, true. If you want if you want a proof text to the Old Testament, you can justify pretty much whatever you want to. They mm-hmm. did it with slavery, they've done it with wars, you know, so you can you can use the scriptures that way. Right. If you're willing to abuse them and to twist them. Right. Right. Buddhism, on the other hand, doesn't really to my knowledge, and again, I'm far from an expert on it, but I'm unaware of any of the various Buddhist kind of sacred texts that would ever speak well of violence. You know what I mean? Like that's it. Buddhism has sometimes been described as more of a philosophy than a religion. Right. And it is a very uh, uh, pacifist philosophy right. and religion. Right. So it would be it would be a huge shock if it militarized to that point to where it would be like them responding with acts of actual violence. But I would have no difficulty whatsoever just kind of looking at the human condition, envisioning them responding with, you know, kind of going back to what you had talked about a little bit with that idea of the 
the oppressor and the oppressed, it would not particularly shock me to find that the Buddhist ruling party, for example, responded with acts of what could be called kind of um, political uh, aggression in terms of how they made rules and those kinds of things to try and kind of get back at these things. Or who knows, maybe they already have, and that's why the tension has been rising. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I think when we're talking about these ideas of terrorism and attacks and things, yeah, this one is new and fresh and stands out to us, and the timing of it is so brutal and awful. But at the same time, I feel like it all kind of keeps coming back to the same root questions. Like, why is this viewed as a solution? You know, why are we at a point where um, religion is being used as a justification for violence again? Why are we at a point where when there is a minority group, they find themselves in a situation where they feel like the only way to assert their voice is to go about these kinds of violent actions? Right. And none of this is intended as a justification for them to do these things. But like these power politics are a very real thing that are playing out on both sides of it. Like that, that feeling of oppression, whether it's based in reality or not, the, the feeling of it can still be very real and still be something that leads people to certain actions or makes certain actions that would normally be completely unreasonable to them seem acceptable. Uh, so let me bounce this off you. Bounce away. In our area of expertise, per se, you know, pluralism, we've always looked at as kind of a negative thing, right? I think in the, you know, Christian apologetics, pluralism has been defined as the true for you, but not for me, uh, except right. everybody's stuff as as right. And we've kind of we kind of look at pluralism as a bad thing but i was listening to i used to listen to a podcast it was like an international or a national uh, conference it was basically a phone call where they brought in people that were working in the middle east for you know whatever different reasons and they would give 10 minute talking and they would answer questions from people all over the world that were calling in and okay. one, and one of the common themes that everybody was saying is that pluralism they need pluralism in these areas and that really kind of shocked me because what she was really saying is they need more people that are different than them in these areas. They need to interact with the other more to find out that just because they're other doesn't mean they're evil. And that, you know, so pluralism as they were looking at it in the middle East is very different than how we view pluralism here in America. And I feel like that's might be like a source of tension over there too. Is just that they don't, interact with enough people that are different than them or maybe they have and they still hate them i'm i'm not sure like what are your thoughts on pluralism well, so i i can't overcome my distaste for pluralism uh, but i can agree with the idea that they do need an actual plurality they need to encounter the other but at the same time simply encountering the other isn't enough uh there needs to be some kind of a structuring to it. And I think one of the big problems we run into with the great white savior, with the idea that we're going to come in as the wise West and fix the Middle East and fix the Far East and all of this kind of stuff, one of the problems we run into is that we, as much as people in our culture might like to try and claim pluralism as this good thing, we're not actually good at it. Because hmm. what we say is that 
you know, you need to be open to other people's ideas. Okay. Well, are you? Right. Are you open to the fact that they want to do things differently than you do? Uh, should you be is another question. Like how much, uh, how much are you going to just sort of engage their culture where it's at versus trying to make changes or to make shifts happen in it? And we don't really know what we mean when we say it. But I do think that That's there is point. something to that idea that there needs to be there needs to be conversation. Now, I don't know how to make that conversation happen. If I did, realistically, I probably wouldn't be on this podcast. I'd be far <laughs> too busy being shipped all over the world to settle all kinds of disputes <laughs> that I'm not capable of solving. But like the, the reality is that anytime we are entering into another culture, I think a big part of it for me is it's going to come back to that same idea we talk about all the time where it's love then challenge. Right. But you can't claim you love if you don't know. And so if we're, if you're going to want to try and go in, you know, if whether it's as a missionary or whatever the specific role might be, if you're going to go into one of these situations where there is intense conflict, you have to be willing to go in and just be there first. Like, keep your mouth shut, observe, look, listen, ask. Like, do those three things first for a long time right? before you go trying to give your opinion. Because really, you know, when we look at what has happened when European and Western civilizations have attempted to go into different cultures and tried to fix their problems. Well, it hasn't gone well. Right. We mentioned the India Pakistani relationship briefly earlier, talking about like the, the Hindu Muslim conflicts as kind of a contrast to what we haven't heard about the Buddhists. So there's that one. That's a pretty straightforward one. There are the meetings that they had in Europe to divide up the African continent, uh, where they drew random boundaries without any knowledge of which tribes and people lived in which areas and what their actual relations with each other were. Um, and then just sit back now and act like we're shocked that they can't get along, when in reality they haven't gotten along for hundreds of years before this. But it wasn't a problem because they were independent tribes that didn't have to get along until we decided, hey, you're now one nation. Hmm. I think, yes, we need to be involved. Like the, the reality is the world at this point doesn't allow for isolationism. You can't pretend like none of it is our concern. And so, yes, being involved is a thing that has to happen. But we need to be extremely careful about how we get involved. We can't just be some savior from beyond who comes in to fix their problems for them. Because think about it from a human nature perspective. When was the last time a person came in from outside and told you how to fix your life and you were super grateful to them? Yeah. If you can think of a time, you've got one more than me. I, I'm, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with the, the human nature aspect. I mean, at 100%, yeah. I don't like people telling me how to do things mm -hmm. flat out. Like, and that's just talking about stupid little stuff, not even you know, my whole religion or anything like that. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, you're sitting there looking at extremism. How do you engage in an extremist position? Like, I mean, there is the idea of an extremist is that there is no middle ground. So you can't even connect. No, that's true. At all. So, I mean, how do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, and the, the standard well, response is violence with violence, extremism with extremism. And that's obviously not working either. No. But, but I mean, 
I don't know what the solution is because I mean, without a middle ground, how, how do you get anywhere? Well, so, and that, that's a key point though, is that realistically, once a person or a group has become radicalized, it is virtually impossible to, to engage with them and interact with them in any way that isn't going to be further radicalizing. So what it has to be then is instead like, okay, what are the things that they're being radicalized over? What could we do to make their sales pitch harder to the people who aren't radicalized? You know, like that was blowback and pushback against the operation shock and awe when we bombed Iraq in the middle of the night and everything was it's like, you do understand that the way we're celebrating this, like as, a, as if it's a fireworks display, this is going to be the sales pitch that they're going to use for the people who are living there mm-hmm. who weren't radicalized before, but will be now. Now that's not to say that it, I, I don't know what the appropriate, what the best way to handle that would have been. Right. But like, that's a very real thing that you need to consider. And so, like you said, once they're radicalized, what are you going to do? Yeah. And I what I, it seems hard because we are going to go approach the people who aren't radicalized yet, but we can only be ourselves. And so we're going to bring them us and it's going to be an outsider trying to tell them what to do or how to change or change who they are. But it doesn't have to be like, again, that's the thing. Bring them us, have a, a Muslim child in Sri Lanka, spend time with a Christian child and recognize their humanity in spite of the differences in their religion. Like, I'm not telling them they can't be Muslim. I'm not telling them that they should be going to our church instead or anything like that. But the first step in almost any, like, tyrannical, genocidal regime is always dehumanizing. Yes. And so if if we can just by our presence make people aware of our humanity and recognize the humanity in them, that'll make the radicalization a much harder thing to do. I'm not naive enough to think that, oh, all they need to do is meet some nice people and then everything will be fine. Like, that's right. not that's not what I'm saying. But I think that's a good first step. Yeah, that's hard for me, man, because you, you know that just taking those nice people and putting them in that bad place you have to have a lot of nice people to be able to replace the ones that get uh, taken care of by the extremists, right? Like, I mean, you're going to have to basically have a backfill of nice people to replace it. Cause otherwise once they're killed off in the extreme environment, then what happens, you know, like they, and, and it is really that extreme. I mean, they know who is doing these things and they know who's influencing them culturally societal. If they're out there just being nice and they see people starting to sway. First thing they do, man, they get extreme and they attack that. You know, like I don't, I don't know how how many nice people there are that would want to just go in and basically sacrifice for the hope of a future generation in that area. Well, but hold on though, like let's not make it sound like everyone who goes and does missionary work ends up getting killed off. Like even in really extreme places. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I get it. I'm not saying I'm not trying to minimize the fact that there are definitely there are people being martyred today. Like that. That's absolutely a thing that's happening. But at the same time, we can't say that we want things to be different and then say we're not willing to change what we're doing. Because if we do things the same way we have been, which is 
send money and hope for the best. Right, yeah. Or send troops and show them the worst. Like, neither one of those has been effective. And so I, I hear you. It's not easy. And I don't know how many people are going to be willing to step up and, like, volunteer for it. But I do know that there are people who are willing to step up and volunteer for it. Right. I guess that's true. And so, like, we've got to... And and I know we're yeah. we're talking about the minority of the people over there that are responding in this way. We're not talking about the no, majority. no, absolutely. There are there are, and you're right. There are a, a lot of people who don't want to be extreme. They right. want to actually have those interactions. They just want a nice life for their family, and those mm-hmm. are the people that you would be able to influence. And we need to like my main thing is that they need to remain the majority. That group of people. Right. And so re- responding with aggression, you know, that, that whole idea of, and with all due respect to the Forest Service, I'm not challenging their, their policy <laughs> on their controlled burns and those kinds of things. But like, generally speaking, when people talk about the idea of fighting fire with fire, what happens when you use fire on fire is the flame gets bigger. Right. If you want to actually fight the fire, then you fight fire with water or uh, you know, I mean, unless it's an electrical fire, let's not get carried, carried away <laughs> and crazy with this. But you know, like you, you, you gotta, you gotta go at it with a counteracting element. You can't right. go at it with the same one. But yeah, I mean, and again, like this is not a topic that I think we should be entering into this conversation with the idea that we were going to find a solution. No, not not at all. But oh no, no, I know. But I, I'm saying more for like making sure people realize that we understand that as well. Right. Like that's... when we're saying these things, none of what I'm saying and none of what you're saying is intended to be like, oh, if they would just listen to us and just do this, right? Then they would see how much better things are. Yeah, not the local problem. We're talking the theory or philosophy behind yeah. it. Yeah. And so let me bounce this last one off you. Okay. And then we can we can wrap it up. So this is gonna sound like a really stupid comparison, but I look at the anti-bullying campaigns that we've seen over here. Okay. They are not government mandated. You know, it's basketball players and celebrities and, you know, random musicians or something like that. People of influence, but they're, they are still just people. They're not actually the government that, as far as I, I'm sure somebody's right. got government funding for it at some point. But Oh, sure. I mean, that campaign is primarily led by the people. So why do you think, in just generalizations, why do you think that we don't, and maybe there are, and we don't know about it, but don't see a lot of those people-led initiatives to change their own environment. You mean like in Sri Lanka or... Just, I, I, I mean, mean, I guess... Not Sri, Sri Lanka, Lanka specifically, but like right. in these places where these things are happening? Right, right. Because, um, I mean, I've, re- I've listened to a lot of different things, and it sounds most everybody is kind of keeping their head down, trying to stay out of the way, don't want to get hurt. And, you know, that silent, quiet, you know, don't see me kind of approach rather than right. if we're the majority and we tell them that we don't want this and this isn't okay, eventually the majority will win out, you know, over a loud minority. But the loud minority has really got the, the majority under wraps. Yeah. Um, so, I again, I, I want to try and make sure that I don't say anything that I'm going to regret and have to come back and apologize for later. But like, I think, and I'm not worried about like what I'm about to say being offensive per se, but just, so I think a big part of it is just that we don't know the dynamics over there. But I think one thing, you know, we, we talk a lot about the negatives 
of our celebrity-driven culture and everything. Right. And rightly so. Most of those critiques are very well earned. But at the same time, there are definitely advantages to them. We've got people who have uh, a position of authority without being authoritative. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's possible for, like you said, someone who's just, you know, a person, just an individual to accrue the kind of recognition and authority just by sheer volume of popularity that they can say things and have that have an impact. Right. When you're dealing with much more kind of rural, uh, impoverished areas where people in this town have no idea who any of the people in this next town over are, it's a lot harder for you to have that kind of uh, wider reach and wider uh Impact. Yeah. Your sphere of influence is just smaller. Right. In those circumstances, I think is one big part of it. The other part of it, too, I think is probably just a cultural difference. You know, the idea that they don't necessarily value the individual success in the same way that we do. Right. Where, like, this individual person boldly stepping forward and doing these things is just something that we automatically, kind of by culture, respect. Western heroic virtue. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so if we're, because they don't have that, it's more just a matter of, well, who the hell are you? Right. And I feel like they're probably, we have less fear because there's a protection of a first amendment. So that's, that's absolutely true. You know, so there we kind of, like you were saying, we kind of circle back around to that whole, it kind of has to work hand in hand. Government has to give you freedom and then you have to use it properly at the local level. So, you, you know, yeah. cult, culture and government working together, hopefully, you know, to make it better rather than make it worse. <laughs> yeah. That, that would be nice. A man can dream. A man can dream. So if you're going to take all this experience and, you know, whatever's been going on and wrap it up into a life lesson, what would you, what would you pull out of that? You know, I, I think it's not necessarily something we specifically talked about tonight, but it's kind of something that always, stands out to me when we're in these situations is like the more and more we hear about these bad things happening, the more prone we are to think about how rotten things are in the world and how bad things have gotten. And I'm not saying that it hasn't gotten bad or that there aren't things wrong, but I think it's important for us to remember that the reason the bad news stands out, the reason why the bad news generates the headlines is because the bad news is still surprising. And so as bad as these things are, we can take comfort in the fact that this was a shock. This isn't the normal human response to things. And as bad as it is, and as much as we do definitely need to address it, we need to remember that the majority of people, the overwhelming vast majority of people, are just genuinely trying to do the right thing and trying to get make the world a better place with their time in it. And so we've got a lot more allies than we sometimes feel like we do. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. I, I've been struggling actually to try to pull a life lesson out of this. I've, uh, I don't know. It, it, for some reason, it, persecution against religion really hits home for me. For some reason, you know, like there's all the talks of persecution here locally with Democrats and Republicans and stuff. That stuff doesn't bother me. None of the crap that we argue about bothers me. But then when you see that religious freedom isn't everywhere it really hits home for me so i think i don't know that i'll call it a life lesson but maybe a life appreciation i don't know mm. make make some stuff up but i like it run with it freedom of religion 
is huge. I mean, it is such a big deal. Like the ability to be who you are, worship how you worship without fear or the worst fear is just somebody running their mouth going down the street. Yeah. That's not something that everybody in the world has. And I, we get caught up in our micro problems here. And these things kind of shock me into realizing that, boy, the rest of the world doesn't have what I have when it comes to religion. Like the, these yeah. people aren't able to do that without fear. And yep. so I think I'm going to throw out there again, uh, not much for people to take away, but uh, I think just considering that what we have is still really, really good that when you're caught up in the problems of today, these things really make us realize that we are in a, a good place, a really good place. So I think there's much to be appreciated around that as well. Absolutely, man. All right. Well, our thoughts and prayers are definitely going to be with everybody over there. And yeah, the people in Sri Lanka, the, the tourists and their families who were there mm-hmm. caught up in it. Uh, I know there was like a British family. There was a student from D.C. There was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I think there were. I think of the two ninety, it was only like eight, but still, those people from around the world who got themselves caught, who got caught up in this. Man, and ho- hopefully they'll they'll get some good answers, and we'll see some good responses to it that aren't you know extremism Just with extremism. Yeah, and see some some real good stuff come out of it. So, yeah. hopes and prayers. Amen. All right, man. With that, we will say adieu. right now i by all means i have a munchkin that busted into the office here oh there we go that's the problem